Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. Hey. It was really good to see you at the ICC this week. We were together in the journalist space, tuned in to the Ongwen appeal. Yes, it's a really interesting case. It's about Dominique Ongwen who as a nine-year-old in Uganda was abducted by the Lord's Resistance Army, a militia led by fugitive warlord Joseph Kony. Um, the LRA has terrorized Ugandans for nearly 20 years as it fought the government of President Yoweri Museveni from bases in northern Uganda and neighboring countries, as the Reuters blurb goes. Now, when Ongwen reached adulthood, he transformed into one of the LRA's most senior commanders. And that's why he was on trial in The Hague. And this was the appeals judgment. And that's after what the trial chamber has already said. They had found him guilty and the appeals chamber confirmed that he was guilty and confirmed basically all the trial chamber decisions. They confirmed the trial chamber's findings that he was guilty on 61 counts of war crimes and crimes against humanity. And they confirmed that he would get a 25-year sentence, which by my rough calculations means that he will be spending another 15 years in prison, at least if you take into account the regular uh, one-third deduction of sentence and the sentence he's already served. Yeah, but the actual reading of the summary, which was by Judge Luz del Carmen Ibanez Carranza, she also made quite a lot of her own dissenting opinion on part of what was decided, but there were also lots of interesting bits. But in the end, in her dissenting opinion, which was the last bit that came out, she basically thought not enough attention had been played to his previous victimhood. In this case, it is of crucial importance to consider the impact that Mr. Ongwen's abduction, conscription, violent indoctrination, being forced to carry out and participate in criminal acts when he was still a defenseless child of about nine years old, and his upbringing in the coercive environment of the LRA had on his personality, the development of his brain and moral values and future opportunities. A determination of appropriate sentence requires thus a holistic analysis that takes into consideration both the blameworthiness of the convicted person and his or her individual circumstances. Mr. Ongwen's condition as a victim did not cease when he turned 18 years old. And the same judge, Ibanez Carranza, said she would have wanted the sentence to be looked at again and possibly reduced because she felt that there was not enough uh, weight given to the mitigating circumstances of, of his victimhood. And some other of the interesting stuff in the judgment that she read out was about forced marriage. This is the first time that's been dealt with at an international court. And she said basically it definitely was a crime against humanity that the court could address. The appeal chamber also concurs with the trial chamber's finding that the central element of forced marriage is the imposition of conjugal union and the resulting spousal status of the victim. What's interesting there on, on the bit about forced marriage is that the appeals chamber also confirmed the trial chamber's finding that uh, Ong Gwen was central in having the system of abduction of women and girls that kind of fed into the forced marriage. 
the appeals chamber finds that the trial chamber was reasonable in finding that Mr. Onwen was among the persons who helped the find and through their actions over a protracted period sustained the system of abduction and victimization of civilian women and girls in the LRA and that his role within the senior was crucial and indispensable. Okay, now we've kind of summarized a couple of points, you know, very journalistically, I'm sure, not uh, entirely legalistically. Joining us is a panoply of commentators, great ICC watchers, many of whom were amici, which is another word for friends of the court, people who wrote advice to the appeals chamber on how to deal with, for example, the wide range of sexual and gender-based crimes that Ongwen was accused of and, you know, things like how to assess his mental health. We have just a few questions. And the first question that we put to all of you is, what would you like to pick out of what we saw in the summary? And what did you find interesting? So over to you. Hello, I'm Valerie Osterveld. I am a professor of international law at the University of Western Ontario Faculty of Law in Canada. And I also appeared on behalf of a group of nine amazing feminist activists, lawyers, and practitioners from around the world on the subject of forced marriage as an amici before the appeals chamber in February of 2022 on the issue of forced marriage. What I would like to pick out from the judgment is, of course, related to forced marriage. And I was pleased to see that the appeals chamber confirmed that Mr. Ongwen helped to define and sustain the LRA's system of abduction and distribution and victimization of civilian women and girls. Also, that the principle of nullum crimen sine lege, which is the principle that a crime needs to be a crime at the time that the acts took place that are alleged by the prosecutor, was not any sort of barrier in a finding that forced marriage had taken place and that Mr. Anguin was responsible for it in various ways. In other words, that forced marriage was an other inhumane act at the time of the acts that were alleged against Mr. Anguin. In terms of looking at the arguments on forced marriage in particular, the defense had argued that forced marriage is not a crime under the Rome Statute. And the appeals chamber firmly concluded that forced marriage is considered an other inhumane act as a crime against humanity within the Rome Statute. And this is important not only with respect to this case, but also with respect to other cases like the Al-Hassan case that's ongoing right now, in terms of confirming that this was the right approach taken by the prosecutor. And the last thing I'll say at the moment is that the appeals chamber confirmed the understanding of forced marriage as an other inhumane act and indicated that the central element and the underlying act of forced marriage is the imposition of a certain status on a victim in which they're considered a spouse. And that doesn't need to be a spouse under formal law. It is more of a label that is attached to that particular person and then creates a form of victimization where they are 
not permitted to have any relational autonomy. They're not allowed to choose with whom they will have intimate relations, uh, with whom they're, they're associated in partnership or in marriage. And then there's an associated constellation of human rights violations that are attached to that particular position. And that was really helpful because it distinguished forced marriage from other crimes listed in the Rome Statute. And in particular, they pointed out the difference with rape and the difference with sexual slavery. And I found that to be very helpful. Great. Thank you so much for that summary, Valerie. Who else would like to join in? Thanks so much, Janet and Stephanie. And hi, everyone. Really happy to be here, part of this podcast. My name is Elix Vigna. I am the Advocacy Director at Women's Initiatives for Gender Justice. And something that I wanted to point out and that my organization is very sort of happy to see happen now is the jurisprudence, the sound set jurisprudence at the ICC now on a wide range of sexual and gender-based crimes. There were in the 90s so many feminist activists, very courageous people fighting for the inclusion of really progressive elements and crimes in the Rome Statute, such as something that I, together with the Global Justice Center, Amnesty International, and Dr. Rosemary Gray worked on, which is an amicus, as you indicated before, on forced pregnancy. It was a first that the Rome Statute had codified it, and now it's a first that an appeals chamber at the ICC level has given interpretation to that crime that will give us much sharper tools now to advance on the recognition and accountability of this particular type of violence. Happy to give all the rest of the details about our amicus and this crime, but I'll leave it at that for the moment. Thanks. Okay. And who else wants to go now? My name is Jocelyn Getchen-Kestenbaum. I am professor of law at Cardozo Law School, and I direct the Human Rights and Atrocity Prevention Clinic. Our clinic, along with other amazing amicus participants, submitted a brief on sexual slavery and cumulative convictions. And that brief, while it wasn't cited, was also in a concert of these briefs that were advancing the sexual and gender-based crimes arguments. And my first reaction was, yes, some of these sexual and gender-based crimes have been recognized and detailed and defined in the ICC judgment and the appeals chamber has really clearly laid out, especially the forced pregnancy crime and the other inhumane act of forced marriage. My first reaction was that our brief was kind of like Michael J. Fox when he landed in the barn in Back to the Future because our brief wasn't cited. And I think it is ahead of its time in the sense that the court was not necessarily looking at issues that were outside of what the defense was specifically arguing. And our brief addressed that. And we can talk about the specifics of what our brief said. But my reaction was, great, these crimes that are um, you know, asked to be briefed on and are being challenged have been confirmed in many uh, positive ways, but there's still so far to go in terms of the ICC truly recognizing the full breadth and scope of gendered crimes and the way that crimes, even if they are not listed under the gendered listing of sexual and gender-based crimes, 
are still gendered and how we need to be thinking about them so that we don't leave out harms, so that we don't discriminate against particular victim survivors of gendered crimes. Let's ask also Lily if she wants to say something about what you thought initially of the verdict. Thanks so much for bringing us all together and all, all the different voices that were already kind of floating around. My name is Alexandra Lily Catherine. I'm the co-founder of the Emergent Justice Collective. I'd like to comment on the verdict and then the fact that the appeals chamber actually asked in the first place for amicus interventions on sexual and gender-based violence. And that really allowed an opening for feminist collaboration and feminist strategizing around the ongoing appeals judgment. And I think before we celebrate the verdict, we should celebrate that opening and also um, speak about and reflect upon both how this has worked really well, but second, how we can kind of make it better in the future and what we learned from that. So regarding the verdict itself, first, I think it's really amazing that there was a specific kind of discussion on both forced marriage um, as an other inhumane act, as well as forced pregnancy that really confirmed everything we had hoped for and according to the incredible work of the related amici groups but my main applause really goes to that opening that was provided by the appeals chamber to have expert voices but also voices that are experts in their own way and maybe non-traditional way to contribute to the learnings and understandings of harm of the appeals chamber Oyok, if you feel comfortable commenting, I was wondering how you followed the verdict, if you followed it, and what was interesting for you in it from a kind of the non-lawyerly but Ugandan perspective. My name is James Konono. I'm a poet. I have a poetry book called Justice in the Hague, which deals with uh, post-conflict northern Uganda. And basically, the lead poem talks about uh, the trial of Dominic Nguyen. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm a writer, and I've been a practicing journalist for the last over seven years uh, in northern Uganda. I'm speaking from Bulu. For me, uh, my reaction was that what wasn't disappointing for me was the view that finally uh, at least one of the opinion of the judges has been clear that Dominic Nguyen has been a victim. And uh, being a victim, even if you turn 18 years of age, doesn't wrap that away, even though that is not the center or the epitome of the judgment. But for me, that wasn't disappointing because the truth is when you interact with other victims, of course, you'll understand that most of these victims were conscripted into the rebel forcefully. Majority of them went into this rebel group forcefully and nobody wished to be there. And based on the setting of the LRA and other things. But again, my disappointment is that the fact that the ICC cannot attach spirituality as part of the evidence in this trial is a very big thing because as much as we talk about the ICC is really happy to to say the Sinai, uh, Dominic Nguyen has been part of the Sinai Brigade. The Sinai Brigade itself is an issue of spirituality. So that is still my disappointment. But my reaction was, well, I think that is justice to the case location people. And that has to be respected because that means the people of Lokodi, the people of Abok, the people of Pajule, where are the case location? At least this is what they've been waiting for. And they've been praying that this doesn't turn upside down. So for me, this has been something very important because however much there are few, but justice has been delivered to the people in the case location area. The question of the other victims for another day. Thank you. Thank you.
The, the four names that you refer to in Uganda are, of course, the locations of internally displaced persons camps who were attacked by Ongwen, and they form a crucial part of, of the charges against him. And now you talk of or the part that's disappointing for you in the judgment, and we wanted to turn to our other panelists if there are bits that they found disappointing. Oh. Jocelyn, go ahead. Okay, so I am a little disappointed because the, the bottom line is that the court did not address this issue that's pretty complicated in legal terms, but I'll try to just simplify it by saying that in the decision, when the charges of enslavement and sexual slavery were levied against Angwen, and those charges were prosecuted and convicted, so both found to have occurred, that led to this need to decide and determine under the law which one of these crimes would stand for the purposes of conviction, because you can't have what they call cumulative convictions when the two crimes don't each have different elements uh, separate from one another. And so in this case, what the court found was that sexual slavery because according to the court, it's the more specific crime, would then stand while enslavement drops out. This is an absurd result, if you think of it conceptually, because enslavement is the crime and sexualized slavery, sexual acts are indicia of exercising powers of ownership over a person. It's kind of a specific way in which you can exercise ownership powers over a person. And if you think about it conceptually and historically, slavery has always included sexualized control, control over someone's autonomy, because it's control over the entire person. And so to say that then a victim survivor would have to prove that they were held out or they were caused to engage in an act of a sexual nature that forces a, a victim to have to prove more than what they would have to prove anyway. And then that, that crime stands, whereas the enslavement, which is really encompassing of every act of control and ownership over a person, drops out. And so that was very disappointing. The defense did not raise this issue. And so our amicus brief tried to bring that into the appeal for the, the court's consideration and the court didn't go there. And so that to me was the biggest disappointment because sexual slavery is slavery, is enslavement. And when you drop out enslavement, you have a whole host of survivors if they're not caused to engage in a sexual act, but otherwise their sexuality reproduction is controlled. They are not considered to be at the same level of victimization as someone who was basically raped in the course of their enslavement. I see a few nods going around. Maybe some people would like to, to join in on that. Louise, what would you like to say? My name's Louise Arimatsu, and I'm with the Centre for Women, Peace and Security at the London School of Economics. So I, I'm in full agreement with what Jocelyn's just said. In particular, I sort of think about it in the context of the military um, tribunal, the women's tribunal, the Tokyo tribunal that was held by civil society involving my um, colleague Christine Chinkin some 20 years ago, where the, the issue of sexual enslavement came up. And here's my question back to Jocelyn. 
how then as feminists what do you think the barriers might be here and how do we overcome help courts to overcome these barriers in order to get a result that more accurately reflects what it is that victims have actually experienced how do we how do we do that as feminists so that is a really great question louise i feel that We've got a ways to go. And, you know, I think that's the great thing about feminist organizing and reflexive feminist work is that we celebrate the positives, we celebrate the wins, and then we say to ourselves, how can we do this better? Who at the intersections is being erased by what we are furthering? And being, you know, introspective about that and then trying to see how the law, which is a limited tool, really, how the law can address better the harms. How can it be more understanding of harms, especially harms that are less visible? And we know as feminists that harms against women and girls and those who are gender nonconforming are less visible, are rendered invisible, and are in fact at those intersections. And so for me, it is about interrogating who's not at the table, who do we need to bring to the table, how do we characterize harms without invisibilizing some of those identities at the intersections or at the margins? In the case of enslavement and sexual slavery, sexual slavery was a harm that was being rendered invisible in conflict and even outside of conflict. We all know this. And the feminist movement that was pushing for this particular enumeration of the crime in the Rome Statute needed to push for that movement. And we are standing on their shoulders. At the same time, we now are evolving to understand better that all international crimes are gendered in their perpetration. Enslavement being totally misunderstood and historical, largely because we have this myth of international law that we successfully abolished slavery and the slave trade. And so we need to go back and rethink what is this crime? How is it gendered? How does it manifest? And who does it affect and how? And I think that reflexive feminist thinking is exactly where we should go from here. Alexandra, Lily, Katha, would you like to say anything? Yes, I would like to build on what Jocelyn had said and also go back to Louise's question. How, how do we move on from there and how do we move on in a feminist intersectional way that includes the harm of everyone, right? And I think this is also a moment to be realistic about the fact that sexual slavery in application has been applied to only consider heteropatriarchal male-on-female rape in practice. And this is a moment of realization and stepping back where we can do both. We can acknowledge the feminist work of the past while saying we need to take a different one walking into the future. And that can both stand. And also in 50 years from now, feminists that come after us, lawyers that come after us, advocates that come after us, they will build on what we are working now in terms of making sure everyone has access to justice in a way that there's no, no exclusion happening and that there's no adverse distinction happening as per Article 21.3. And that we are also not interpreting and applying the law by violating human rights and its understanding and its application. And I think also building on kind of more conceptually what has happened. And I think for me, the biggest thing from the court in a negative way was that I really saw the appeals chamber 
applying and interpreting the law without really paying nuanced attention to systems of political and social domination at play in the context in which these crimes occurred, right? We heard that Dominic Onwin himself was abducted and enslaved and made a child soldier, and maybe in the context of this also experienced sexual violence. And I think the statement is right that the victimhood does, does not cease, but also the impact of the crimes and harms he has experienced does not cease. And there just has been no meaningful and nuanced and context-specific engagement with this. And this also carries through in the way the harms against survivors and, and victims that have testified is being taken into the courtroom and also reevaluated by the appeals chamber. And as Justin said, there are children, both boy children and girl children, that in a way they have not been fully seen and how their sexuality has been harmed in the context of their enslavement because of the reductive and binary understanding of enslavement on the one hand and sexual slavery on the other. And the fact that the Ting Ting girls, and we wrote about this in our brief, right? They have maybe not been sexually violated in terms of an act of a sexual nature in the context of their enslavement, but their sexuality and the way the sexuality developed over time was definitely watched by the perpetrators who enslaved them. So in a way, their sexuality was part of their enslavement, although there may not have been an act of a sexual nature. So here we really need to have a nuanced understanding of not only gender, but age and the continuum and how gender and age relates in relation to the harm people experience, including people under 18. Before I give the, the floor to Valerie, I just want to clarify for the readers who are not all up in, in LRA, Uganda, Lingo, the Ting Ting girls are children who were abducted and were very young and basically put to work to do kind of household chores for commanders and army units. Valerie, go ahead. Building on what Lily and Jocelyn have said, so many feminists in the past have worked hard towards surfacing different aspects of gender as a socially constructed norm. And many court cases in the past have just not understood the nuance involved in gender. But this particular judgment shows some really good openings in terms of understanding more deeply and in a more nuanced manner, gendered aspects of certain crimes. So for example, in the forced marriage crime, the court said that the duties and expectations of those who were called so-called wives may not only have a sexual component, but indeed is related to the entire social and domestic dimensions of a marital relationship. So in other words, the court was understanding this larger context in which those who were subjected to forced marriage sit and that it was a structure that was systematic. It wasn't simply a collection of sexual crimes, for example. They understood that it was much more than that, that it had to do with the gender dimensions of the assumptions that go around the forms of relationships that were, that were called wives. And I think that is a really positive opening, but yet there's still much more to do. Jocelyn, you had your hand half up. Did you want to add something? So I was piggybacking off of what Lily was saying, just to two-finger um, comment that in addition to the Ting Ting's 
not being recognized as sexualized slaves or enslaved in a sexual way, uh, it, it really was also, there were acts of sexual nature. It's just they weren't rape or heteronormative rape, male and female rape. And those acts included menstrual checks and you know, grooming basically for the time that they would be become wives and then mature in a sexual way for marriage, so-called marriage to commanders. So even acts of a sexual nature aren't seen when they're not in that uh, recognizable rape or rape-like pattern. But I, I, I think we move past that because I, I feel like in thinking about, you know, Valerie's comment about how far we've come, we really have come so far. And this case does demonstrate how far really the court has come. It's just our job, right, as activists, as lawyers, to be ahead of the court, to to consistently remind them where we still need to go. Just to bring this uh, discussion also a little bit back uh, onto the ground. Lorraine, I see that you've you've joined us. Is there something that you would like to add, if you would like to, on how on the ground there may be this kind of enduring harm to the women, mainly women, some men who have experienced the sexual and gender-based crimes on the ground? So I'm Lorraine Smith-Van Lynn. And I am the founder and executive director of Talawa Justice for Women. I'm actually in Jamaica, but I'm not at the beach. I promise you I'm here for, for not so good reasons. So I just want to firstly acknowledge Ugandan colleagues who are not on the call. I don't want to speak for Ugandan colleagues in terms of how they respond to the decision. I tried, and I'd like to say that publicly, I reached out to Pamela Anguesh, who is the executive director of the women's organization in Gulu, and she would have loved to join, but she is traveling from Gulu to Kampala right now. So the only thing I can say at this stage in terms of the impact of the decision and in terms of the impact in particular on what I would call the impact on victims of sexual and gender-based violence and those who are born from the sexualized violence, so the children born of war in particular, the men who have suffered harm, I really think it is, it, it's a landmark decision. I am still processing it. I'm still looking through it. But I can say that it does have and hopefully will have an, a broader impact in terms of how the victims, not just in the Ongwen case, but victims in general of the atrocities that were committed in Northern Uganda are viewed and are seen. And we, I think now we have um, the ammunition, I would call it that, from the chamber to begin to, to be quite specific in terms of the asks in relation to the government of Uganda concerning reparations. So you'd forgive me if I move literally, and I'm sure you will later on in this discussion, to the issue of reparations. Because while I think from a normative standpoint, this decision has made significant inroads, I do think that beyond some of the really important normative aspects of the decision and what it means, certainly in terms of how sexual and gender-based crimes are defined, 
I definitely think that what it now does is set the bar really high for what we can expect in relation to reparations for the victims, for the range of victims that are included in, in the, the decision. And that's where my head has already gone. I, I, I kid you not, I'm really at the reparations phase. But that is not to say that we shouldn't pause to look at what the decision actually is saying concerning the victims of sexual and gender-based violence in particular. And in particular, the reason why I think that's important, I was looking back at the transitional justice policy and how it already reflects some of the, the, the categories of victims that will need to be addressed as part of any kind of reparative justice framework in Uganda. And for me, the, the Ongwen decision has made it even more clear how broad we should look out, the systems and the structures that need to be addressed when we're looking at any kind of reparative justice for the victims. Before we move on to a more wrap-up question, we have James here who is on the ground in Uganda. And, and when the judge gave the verdict, she very specifically spoke about the stigma attached to victims of forced marriage and the, the women and girls who were taken in by the LRA and became bushwives. Maybe you can say something about that that stigma uh, in society. How how are these uh, women treated or these victims treated? The women who are like were wives in the LRA captivity. First of all, remarrying for them has been a, has been a big issue. They cannot remarry. Most of them cannot remarry because the stigma attached to them. And then, uh, apart from that, I think the gender issue is even cross cutting uh, at the time of defection. Because well aware that the government of Uganda, through the UPDF, conscripted most of their husbands back to the UPDF. But these women, who some of them were even more skilled than the men who were recruited back into the UPDF, were left out. So they had no fending for themselves. And unfortunately, some of the men who came back home refused these women for those who even came back home. So I can tell you that these women had a lot to handle and uh, they were really stigmatized and most of them could not remarry and life has just been a hassle for them because you find that uh, especially when you come with a child then you say ah this one has been in the bush was someone husband but also apart from that there is a way people look at them that you know if you marry a woman who has come back from the bush probably she wakes up at night and kills you so you see all these stereotypes brought into their head that made life really very complicated for them. So really, these women had a lot to deal with. And unfortunately, according to the, this ruling, that means we will only be looking at probably these women from the perspective of the case area, which I mentioned, that is Lokodi, Abog, Pajule, and, and, and what about uh, these other women who are, who are not involved in this case, case locations, because they're everywhere. So those are some of the dynamics if you're putting the gender lens in it of this ruling, because I love what Smith said, because that is the reality. So what next? Remember, to be honest with you people, I am from Gulu and Lalueng, for example, that's where my mother comes from. I would have been in the, in the LRA if my mom didn't run with me to Gulu town. So to be specific to you is like, when we are viewing this thing, one of the core regions why the people of Northern Uganda, the war victims, accepted to be witness, step aside the justice issue, was reparation. Reparation was a key issue 
where many people volunteered to give information to the ICC investigations team. And that is a big issue. And I love that Smith brought it out because all years, as I talk to you right now, I'm from Gulu. And one of uh, the best radio station here is Mega FM, which also helped in a lot of defection. The years are tuned. What next with reparation? That is the whole issue as, of, as we talk right now. So that's, that's it. Unfortunately, these women you are talking about, some of them are not in this case location areas. And I think that will be the same thing that the executive director of uh, Gweji would have told you, because some of them are really going to be isolated. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, just another clarification. The UPDF, of course, are the Ugandan government forces. I'm just repeating those stuff for all of our listeners who are not have not read the ongoing indictment with the same detail that I am forced to for my work. Should we see if we can manage uh, to do a round now for wrapping up for what the bigger implications are of this appeals judgment? I think it, that quite a few of you have already touched on some issues that you can see how this has implications for other cases that uh, a lot more expectations set up on whatever levels. Alex, Thanks so much. And let me echo the words by, by Lorraine and by James uh, to say that at the end of the day, it's all about the impact on the survivors, the victims and their communities. So it's a very good thing to be very cognizant of that and, and remind ourselves, if I may, because again, it was the amicus that we uh, submitted on forced pregnancy. The bigger implications are quite, quite, quite big, I must say, because the reproductive autonomy, the reproductive rights of a woman have now been outside of the human rights realm, recognized by one of the top international criminal courts appeals chambers. And now this, the crime of forced pregnancy is really codified and confirmed as protecting a woman's reproductive rights, uh, protecting the right to autonomously determine the way in which she carries out her pregnancy. That's a big game changer in this field. Thank you. Jocelyn. Now let's hope that they can also see the indicia of forced pregnancy as indicia of enslavement. What I would want to also build upon is something that Lorraine spoke eloquently about, about systems and about structures. I think the court is starting to get more nuanced to be able to address systems and structures, and especially for the purpose of recognizing when things are systematic and widespread for crimes against humanity. But some of those systems and structures are not able to be recognized. And we saw in this particular judgment a lot of talk about the abduction and distribution system. And that system is a system of slave trading. And the court cannot address that by the virtue of the statute, not including the crime that is an international crime of the slave trade and talk about how that affects reparations. And that includes reparations talk about still how we cannot face past slave trading systems and repairing for those past slave trading systems that are that have built empires. And it continues to today. So I'm really happy that Lorraine is bringing up the idea of reparations, how we need to be thinking even from the start with how do we best uh, formulate our you know, calls to the court for justice, for accountability. And in the end, it really does need to materially benefit 
the victims and the survivors? If not, then what are we engaging in these issues of accountability and justice for, if not for the victims? Lorraine, would you like to pick up some of the specifics on reparation that uh, you wanted to go into? Thanks. I do want to pick up on some of what um, James alluded to about the gaps that we've seen in previous, not just this case, but I think in previous reparations decisions, we understand the limitations of the court in terms of the the scope of reparations, the fact that it is limited to those who are seen as victims, direct victims or indirect victims of the crimes for which the accused has been convicted. But we do understand that in the Ugandan context, we have a situation where the Trust Fund for Victims has had the longest running public assistance program apart from the DRC. So there has been some work already ongoing on the ground. We have a transitional justice policy framework in which reparations is central. And I do believe that we now need to start looking at the issue of complementary reparations. And this was alluded to by Redress and uh, I think the Global Survivors Fund and other Ugandan organizations in their amicus submission to the court, to the trial chamber on reparations, that the Ugandan government does have a responsibility to complement any reparations that will be ordered by the court. And it is not to be left to the ICC alone. And I think this is something that has to be pushed because this is something from your from the Juba peace talk. This is something that has been an integral part of discussions around peace and accountability in the Ugandan context. So now that we have a decision, the Ugandan government, I would say, has the responsibility to complement any reparations that may be awarded by the ICC. In terms of the the scope and the nature of reparations, I just quickly want to stress the fact that the court now has an opportunity to ensure. I hesitate to say in keeping with some of the the very progressive trends that we saw, at least in the initial Intaganda reparations decision, taking into account the intersectional nature of reparations, taking into account, for example, victims who have multiple harms, who have suffered multiple harms, the children born of war, male victims of sexual violence, the people with disabilities. There are several intersectional types of harms which you will need to therefore have a very nuanced, very specific reparations framework that addresses those multiple layers of harm. I think the the only other thing that I'd like to say to this is something that has been stressed by everyone who has made any submissions to the chamber, the need for a victim-centered approach to a reparations framework. Victims need to be part of the design of any reparations and their views concerning reparations need to be central to the design of the reparations. And the, the reparations at the end of the day need to be prompt. Victims in Uganda, when we're talking about children born of war, I'd like to disabuse persons of any notion that we're talking about babies. The children born of war are now, many of them are now close to 30 years old. And so we have to now look at what are we talking about in terms of reparations that will be meaningful. I'll leave it at that. And I really thank you for this opportunity. Anybody else like to join in with a final word? Alexandra? I'd like to to comment on something Lorraine, but also James has mentioned. I think 
the framework of international criminal justice and its fullest ecosystem, right, gives us a very narrow lens to understand the symptoms. And these are the legal elements of the crimes we are trying to prove. But I think something that James has said is we need to look at the wounds and we need to look at the systems behind what causes the symptoms that we are seeing, right? And what James spoke about is really that these systems of oppression and dominance of women and children and men and other persons affected by violence, they're still impacted by the same systems that have caused the crimes that the appeals chamber now has adjudicated. And that I think needs to be taken and to connect to Lorraine's point very seriously in the context of reparations. And I think it's a learning curve for all of us to understand reparations as measures beyond outcomes of judgments by criminal courts. And we need to repair the wounds in form of reparations in the most holistic way. And the people who can only tell us about it are, are those in their multiple forms that, that experience intersecting violence in this way. Before I give the floor to Valerie, I see also James has his hand up. Yeah, thank you very much. I want to recall what uh, Smith has said. Yeah, unfortunately, the victims are not being brought in because for how long has the transitional justice framework been in the corridor of parliament of Uganda? Yesterday, we had Okot Pabitek Memorial Symposium and the Minister of Justice and Constitutional Affairs, who happens to be the current president of the Democratic Party. Norbert Mao was here. I, I had an interface with him. I asked him about the TJ framework uh, you're talking about. He said, yeah, it is there and it's something we are working on. But as far as I know, some few people are being called here and there and uh, they are making a recommendation and moving on uh, the TJ framework that you're talking about. Unfortunately, it's not involving the people. And I was asking him, some of us are interested party because we need other mechanisms to, to support the reparation. But is it really what government is interested in? I don't think government of Uganda is really interested in bringing out uh, the transitional justice uh, maybe act or something so that it brings the transitional justice commission. Because in most cases, the government has been on record that this is not a priority. The priority for Uganda, according to the government, has been the road, has been the current oil which we have. And those are some of its priority. And transitional justice issue has never been a priority of government. So unless maybe we put in some maybe activism or some bold awareness based on this judgment now for the war victims, then probably, yes, maybe something can be done. But as we talk right now, we have a cold hand from the government of Uganda because they're not taking this as a priority. In response to the children born in the LRA captivity, yeah, it's true, uh, they're already adult and some of them have become street gangs. There are narratives on a go that there is a specific idiom or what uh, which has already been put in Gulu, which is called Ago. It's A-G-W, it's an actually word, which has been given uh, to some of these children of war on the street. So it's true, they have become, most of them have become street gang. Most of them also studied. It is not also true uh, that all the children that came out of captivity have nothing. Some of them studied and some of them are in good position, they are working, but that doesn't remove away the fact that they came out of war. So uh, when we are talking about the, the transitional justice system, we also need to make a redesign on how we can make government take interest. Otherwise, as of now, this is not a priority to government of Uganda. And let's turn finally to Valerie to say what she sees as the broader implications of this judgment. This appeals judgment is another step in the process of surfacing gendered and intersectional harms 
and another step in bringing more nuance, more sophistication, and deeper understanding of these harms. And what I saw in this particular judgment is a confirmation that it's really important to understand the big picture of sexual and gender-based violence and of the role of gendered norms in a, in a wider sense over time in order to contextualize and see the patterns of conduct and of harms that have taken place in this particular conflict and by this particular accused and those that he had control over. What this does is set the bar higher, just as the Antiganda case before it set the bar higher for understanding in this more sophisticated manner the role of gender within society, within international criminal law. And it does so by pushing up the understanding so that in the next case, so whether the next decision that comes out is an Al-Hassan, for example, or another case, then it builds on it. So I see this as, as a, a really important development, but certainly not the end. It's re we're really still at the beginning with the ICC. Thank you for summarizing that, Valerie. Just again with my Stephopedia and Taganda, of course, is the case of a Congolese warlord who was convicted to 30 years, I think, for war crimes and crimes against humanity, which set some, some bars for reparation and also the convictions. Now, we um, want to invite you all to stay on for another couple of minutes if you have time, just to answer our traditional last question in case any of you would like to, which doesn't really fit with the rest of the podcast, but, you know, why not? Is there anything that you would like to suggest for people to read, to listen to, to watch as we go into a break from our podcast over the next few weeks? We won't be recording or putting anything out after this one for another couple of weeks while we do something else. What's on your bookshelves? What's in your Netflix queue? What would you like to suggest that we listen to? James, Tell us about your book. Should we buy it? Where do we buy it from? My book, Justice in the Hague, uh, raises, basically raises the issue of, uh, of the other victims. For now, I think there has been basic publication by Justice and Reconciliation Project. JRP uh, did a lot of work in documenting the war. And I think there is also a thesis by a Canadian called Children Born Out of War. You can look for that. That. And then uh, one important book that I would like recommend all of you to look for is called The Companion of Conflict in Uganda, has been done by Refugee Law Project. This one uh, put into context most of the conflict in the Uganda and how it affects Uganda as a whole. It goes beyond the LRA. So those are some of my recommendations. Great. Thank you so much, James. Anybody else like to join in with um, some recommendations maybe beyond Uganda? Jocelyn. Well, this is not beyond Uganda, but something that was on my bookshelf recently is uh, Decolonization and Afrofeminism. It's the most recent book by Ugandan feminist Sylvia Tamale, who's a professor at Makerere, and she's just fantastic. And everyone should be reading everything that she's written, but that's her most recent book. And Lily, do you have uh, anything that you're watching, listening, reading to that you would like to recommend? 
I mean, connecting to what Jocelyn said, Sylvia Tamale was quoted in a piece that myself and Angela Mudukuti wrote on the feminist process on intervening in Ongwen and the importance to recognize how coloniality shows up in the way the law is being interpreted and applied, but also sometimes in the way we organize around intervening and making our own legal arguments and workings around that. So I encourage everyone to dive into this as we all collectively have a lot to unlearn and learn ourselves. Something that's also interesting is a Netflix series called The Dissidents, which is about learnings about the transatlantic slave trade, enslavement and slavery of persons and it and its effects until the present day. Anybody else want to join in? Valerie? I would recommend that everyone take a look at a recent article by Miriam Denov and others. And it's from the International Journal of Human Rights. It's on a different mass atrocity, and it relates to forced marriage. And it's titled, We Vowed by Force, Not by Our Heart, Men's and Women's Perspectives on Forced Marriage During the Cambodian Genocide. Oh, very interesting. Louise, do you have any recommendation as our last, in Dutch you can say the the gate closer, the hekkesluiter, but I guess uh, I'm trying to... Rack my brain for the English equivalent, but too many languages. Louise. Okay, so I was going to pitch a little documentary that um, my colleagues and I put together as part of a project, um, and it can be um, seen on our website. That's the Women, Peace and Security website. And it's called The Legacy of the Tokyo Women's Tribunal. And it brings together all sorts of um, different issues that were touched on today, but in respect of the, the lack of accountability following World War II. But the star key players in this are, for example, Patty Sellers, who I think you're all familiar with, and a couple of the judges. Also, as I said um, earlier, my, my colleague, Christine Chinkin. But it, it's, it's a 10-minute documentary. It's won several prizes. Um, and, and so I do recommend that you just have a look at the website. So it's called The Legacy of the Tokyo Women's Tribunal. There you go. Great. Thank you so much. A really uh, good broad range of uh, recommendations there that we will add onto our webpage. Thank you all for making time at very short notice to to join in this uh, open house Zoom with uh, a range of voices from both on the ground and from amongst the Amici academics who joined in the giving advice to the appeals chamber. And thank you very much and uh, look forward to spending 2023 with you. Thanks so much, everyone. Bye. Happy holidays. Thank you all. Thank you very much. Bye. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg. This episode was recorded at the Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development, and humanitarian action. Music is by audionautics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.